Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Cowden coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, new conflicts between Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr. Now his brother, Jonathan Falwell, is in the mix. Andy Stanley, the pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, is facing criticism for hosting a conference that many observers say affirms homosexuality. Also in today's program, the Episcopal Church continues its decades-long decline. We'll have some facts and some numbers. And the Southern Baptist leaders met last week in Nashville, and, well, things are still a mess. We'll have a report. We begin today with news that Senator Chuck Grassley wants to investigate the Christian ministry World Vision. World Vision is one of the largest Christian ministries in the country. It takes in about $1.4 billion every year. It's a Christian relief and development organization. Senator Grassley is concerned that the ministry aided terrorists in the Gaza Strip, but World Vision has repeatedly denied that. This story began a couple of years ago. It did. uh, As Ministry Watch, in fact, reported last year, an Israeli court sentenced World Vision's Gaza director, Mohammed El Halabi, to 12 years in prison for allegedly transferring ministry funds to the terrorist organization Hamas. World Vision has strongly denied the claims and conducted an extensive financial investigation using international auditors that revealed no financial wrongdoing. But that didn't stop Senator Grassley from asking a series of questions to the ministry. Why did Senator Grassley feel the need to get involved? Well, for one thing, World Vision is a major beneficiary of federal funding, and Senator Grassley does have a long history of acting as a watchdog over the nonprofit sector. About 15 years ago, for example, he was responsible for an investigation into televangelists. In fact, those televangelists, which included Benny Hinn and Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Copeland, came to be known as the Grassley Six. The investigation made national news, though... Unfortunately, it resulted in little change. In this case, World Vision has denied its work in Gaza supporting terrorists. It's even hired outside accounting firms to confirm that. It did. The audit that was done by those outside firms, though, was never released to the public. And now Senator Grassley is demanding to see it. Grassley says he's concerned that World Vision is a major recipient of funding from the USAID, the Agency for International Development. Uh, The ministry, in fact, received almost $500 million, $491 million in USAID funding last year. And according to Senator Grassley's letter, a 2022 World Vision report listed about $9.6 million going to Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. Uh, That uh, number was in the annual report, but there was no additional information identifying the extent of the involvement in Gaza. Congress and the American people deserve transparency, Senator Grassley wrote in his letter. Uh, That transparency should be in respect to the steps the World Vision has taken to ensure that taxpayer money is used as intended and not for illegal activity. Warren, you've been following the story for a few years. What's the bottom line here? 
Well, I think the bottom line here is that Senator Grassley certainly is within his rights uh, to ask World Vision for an accounting of the money. In fact, I applaud him uh, for that. Uh, some of our listeners might know that whenever Senator Grassley was inve- investigating the televangelists, I was working for World Magazine. I interviewed Senator Grassley repeatedly and in one case for over an hour in his office on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. So I think Senator Grassley is um, a straight shooter and doing the right thing. I should also mention, though, that I have been to Israel in the West Bank with World Vision. I spent a couple of days with World Vision a few years ago looking at the work that they do there, and it is, in fact, legitimate work. So it does not surprise me that World Vision would have spent, say, in the order of $10 million uh, in Gaza and the West Bank and in the Jerusalem area generally. I would also say that uh, World Vision has been very transparent. I've had a number of interviews with World Vision. They take these accusations seriously, the accusations against uh, Mohammed El-Halabi, but they also say that they have done everything they can do to ensure that money goes to relief and development and not to a terrorist organization. They also say that Mohammed El Halabi doesn't even have uh, enough money to give money to Hamas. In other words, the amount of money that El Halabi has been accused of giving to Hamas, he doesn't have the authority over that much money. He doesn't have access to that much money. So, in general, this is kind of a tough situation. We're going to continue to keep our eye on it, uh, but uh, it's uh, it, right now unresolved. Or and let's shift to another story. The ongoing legal battle between Liberty University and Jerry Falwell Jr. has taken yet another twist. It has. Jerry Falwell Jr., the disgraced former president of Liberty University, is now alleging misconduct by the board of directors and attempting to ban the university from using images of his late father. In an amended complaint, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. filed in federal court this week. Uh, he said that uh, that several board members, including former interim president Jerry Prevo and former Southern Baptist Convention president Jerry Vines, diverted university funds to their private causes. Falwell Jr. also alleges the board overlooked the sexual misconduct of former leaders, including an unnamed former president, only to turn on Jerry Falwell Jr. when his life fell apart. Falwell Jr. Uh, also alleges that the board exploited a near-fatal lung condition that he suffered and harassed him by not paying him retirement benefits. The complaint lays much of the blame at the feet of Jerry Prevo. The complaint does say that Prevo diverted funds uh, from the school to his personal foundation and also used the school's corporate jet to fly to his homes in Alaska and in Arizona. Uh, The trips to Alaska cost, by the way, about $35,000 per trip, and the ones to Arizona, about $20,000 per trip, according to the complaint that Jerry Falwell Jr. filed. Falwell also alleges that Prevo made many of his decisions only after consulting with evangelical leader Franklin Graham. So what does Liberty have to say about these accusations? Well, it issued a statement defending its right to use Jerry Falwell's name since Falwell was a founder of the school. 
Our next story takes us to Andy Stanley's North Point Community Church near Atlanta, Georgia, where the church is hosting what's known as the Unconditional Conference later this month. And the conference has some people asking if Stanley is departing from biblical Christianity. The conference bills itself as a premier event for Christian parents with LGBTQ plus children, ministry leaders, and healthcare professionals. It's being put together by Greg and Lynn McDonald, who are parents of a son who identifies as gay. They started a ministry called Embracing the Journey and wrote a book by the same name to help parents learn to love God, the people he created, and the church, even when they seem to be at odds. Or, and I imagine there are a growing number of people in the church with family members who identify as LGBTQ, and it makes sense the church should equip and prepare them how to handle these situations and love their family members in light of the gospel. So what is the issue with this conference? Well, you're raising a good point, and you're also, though, asking a good question uh, about this particular conference. There are, in fact, a few issues. First, Andy Stanley is an influential pastor. He's the son of the late Charles Stanley, and he's come under scrutiny uh, lately for comments that he's made about homosexuality. So this conference just, in some ways, uh, it supports uh, Andy Stanley's critics that says that he's going soft on this issue. They say that his comments affirm homosexuality as a lifestyle within the church. Another issue is that the Unconditional Conference features speakers who are either openly gay, such as Justin Lee and Brian Neitzel, or who say that same-sex monogamous relationships can be acceptable to God, like theologian David Gushy. Our writer, Kim Roberts, spoke to Jeff Johnston, who is a gender issue analyst for Focus on the Family. What did he say? Well, Johnston himself left homosexuality and has been married now for 30 years, and he's concerned that the conference will mislead attendees about what the Bible teaches regarding homosexuality and gender identity. He said the speakers at the Unconditional Conference embrace a narrative that says Christians don't deal well with these issues and are often hateful towards homosexuals. But Johnston decided some research and particular a gay researcher who said that families who embrace religious faith actually respond better to their children's revelations of same-sex attraction and gender issues than non-religious families. Johnston is not the only Christian leader speaking out about this conference. Al Moeller, who's the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, wrote a scathing article about the conference saying that Andy Stanley is in danger of departing from biblical Christianity. Now, you can read more uh, from that story, including resources that Johnston does recommend for families facing issues related to gender and sexuality by going to the ministrywatch.com website and clicking on Kim Roberts' story. Warren, we need to take a break. When we return, we'll take a look at the Southern Baptist Convention, whose executive committee met this week for their annual meeting. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll have that story and much more after this short break.
Hey everybody, Warren Smith interrupting the podcast for just a moment to let you know that uh, it's now September, of course, and a new month means that we have a new donor premium. Uh, We're offering Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan for Changing the World Through Everyday People. It's a book that I wrote in 2015 with John Stone Street. John, of course, uh, many of you know, is the president of the Colson Center. He's an old friend and a great colleague. And, you know, John and I are both really um, pleased with this book. I can tell you that um, John and, and the Colson Center use it as part of their Colson Fellows Program. And um, I, I just think that if you care about Christian ministries and you care about the life of the church in this country, that you'll want to read this book. This book talks about ministries that are doing great work uh, in this country. There are ministries that uh, I think that we can at least pray for, if not financially support. And honestly, too, it's a little bit of a palate cleanser um, for some of the bad news that we report on here at Ministry Watch. Now, I do want to be clear that I think all news that is true is good news because it does make us aware of what's going on in the world and what to do about it. Uh, But this is unabashed good news that you will read in Restoring All Things. So a gift of any size to Ministry Watch during the month of September, and you'll get a free copy of Restoring All Things as our thank you. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Now let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up now, news out of Nashville, Tennessee, as leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention met this week for their annual meeting. The Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee lost another leader before it could even get started. Meeting in Nashville, the trustees from the executive committee had hoped to approve retired Kentucky Pastor Dan Summerlin as interim president and CEO. But during the executive session on Tuesday, trustees learned that Summerlin had withdrawn as a candidate. Louisiana Pastor Philip Robertson said Summerlin had come to the conclusion that at this particular time, this job just might be a little too much than he could handle. During a news conference on Tuesday, Robertson read a statement from Summerlin. We're going to quote from that statement. Upon further reflection, it has become evident that what is best for the convention and for my family is to withdraw my name from consideration at this time. Summerlin would have been the committee's sixth leader in the past six years, and his withdrawal marks the second time this year that a nomination for leader of the executive committee has fallen apart. In May, a search committee had nominated Texas Pastor Jared Wellman, a former committee chair, as the permanent president, but a vote on Wellman failed the same month. And that's not the only news coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention this week. It's not. In fact, maybe even bigger news uh, didn't happen at the executive committee, but it surrounds a former SBC president named Johnny Hunt. Now, back in 2010, uh, right after he completed his term as president of the SBC, Johnny Hunt took time off for his annual vacation. He had planned to return to the pulpit at First Baptist Church in Woodstock, Georgia, the church that he had helped build in early August, 
But just before his first Sunday back, Hunt announced that he was taking a leave of absence, citing his health and a sense of exhaustion. What no one knew at the time was that Hunt had another reason for his leave. Yeah, on July 25th of that year, 2010 again, while vacationing in Florida, Hunt had kissed and fondled another pastor's wife in what his attorneys would later call a brief consensual extramarital encounter. Then Hunt spent more than a decade covering up the incident. Uh, Hunt retired as the megachurch pastor in 2019 and took on a new role as senior vice president for the SBC's North American Mission Board and continued a busy and often lucrative career as a preacher and public speaker. Then in 2022, an investigation into how the SBC leaders dealt with the issues of abuse was released, and his name was included in the report. Hunt said that it ruined his career and his reputation, and he's now suing the Southern Baptist Convention. One of the things he is alleging is that his private life should remain private, even though he was a public figure and these actions, uh, which were admitted to, disqualified him from ministry. The heart of Hunt's claim of invasion of privacy and defamation was summed up in a recent court filing submitted by his attorneys. Hunt's sins, they wrote, were a private moral failing that should have been kept confidential. When our next story keeps us within the Baptist denomination, the Baptist Children's Home of North Carolina announced Tuesday that its president, Michael Blackwell, has retired effective immediately. Now, normally a retirement announcement wouldn't rate news here, but the announcement came on the heels of a closed-door meeting held last week by the board's 36 members in which they discussed the findings of an ongoing investigation into Blackwell's use of ministry funds. In May, the Baptist Children's Home hired a prominent North Carolina law firm called Shell Bray to conduct that investigation. Shell Bray's investigation looked into Blackwell's use of a ministry Amex card over the course of three years. According to Shell Bray's report, during that three-year period, Blackwell charged over $95,000 to the American Express card with expenses that were personal in nature and did not serve the Baptist Children Home purposes. Blackwell also used BCH funds to purchase a new 2022 Nissan Altima valued at over $30,000 for his wife. Uh, This was done without board awareness or approval, according to the report. Now, BCH Chief Operating Officer Keith Henry and Executive Vice President for Development and Communications Brenda Gray have been sharing executive leadership responsibilities since Blackwell began his leave, and they will continue in that role until the board reaches a long-term solution. Our next story is about the nation's largest Baptist university, which has settled a lawsuit brought by 15 women who say they were sexually assaulted on or near campus. That's right. The settlement has been seven years in the making. Baylor University in Texas uh, was sued back in 2016, and the lawsuit eventually resulted in the ouster of the university's president, Ken Starr, and its head football coach. We are deeply sorry for anyone connected with the Baylor community who was harmed by sexual violence. That, according to a statement from Baylor University. 
While we can never erase the reprehensible acts of the past, we pray that this agreement will allow these 15 survivors to move forward in a supportive manner. So what's the story? Well, the scandal first came to light back in 2015 and 2016 when Baylor football players were accused of sexual assault. Uh, The women claimed that in addition to being assaulted, school officials pressured them to not report the attacks. And Baylor hired a law firm called Pepper Hamilton to investigate how the allegations of assault were handled. What did the investigation find? While the law firm's investigation has never been fully released to the public, we do know that it determined that Baylor did little to respond to the accusations of sexual abuse, or sexual assault rather, involving the football players over a several-year period. And that also raised broader questions about the school's response to sexual assault claims on other parts of the campus, not associated with a football team. In response, Baylor removed its president, Ken Starr, as I mentioned earlier, and also fired its head coach, Art Brills, uh, who had led the school to a Big 12 championship uh, just a couple of years earlier. Baylor officials claim, though, that they have now made sweeping changes in addressing sexual assault claims and victims, in part based on the Pepper Hamilton report. Let's look at one more story before the break. A prominent Latina bishop in the United Methodist Church is facing a church trial this week on multiple charges of harassment, fiscal malfeasance, and general charge of disobedience. Bishop Minerva Carqueño, a leader of the California-Nevada Conference, or region, of the United Methodist Church, was suspended from her church leadership role more than 18 months ago after complaints were brought against her. The United Methodist Church has never before put a bishop on trial, nor imposed such a long suspension on a member of the clergy. Typically, the clergy may be suspended for up to, say, 60 days, according to the church's rulebook. The trial of the first Latino bishop in the denomination is also raising questions about whether the church is unfairly singling out Hispanics, a minority within the mostly white church. It has, but I should also add that the charges here are serious. Uh, the four charges against her are presented by retired Bishop Alfred Gwynn. Uh, the trial's presiding officer are disobedience to the order and discipline of the United Methodist Church, relationships and or behavior that undermine the ministry of another pastor, harassment, including but not limited to racial and or sexual harassment, and fiscal malfeasance. On Tuesday of this week, she pleaded not guilty to all four charges. Now, 13 ordained United Methodist deacons and elders and two alternates uh, have been chosen to serve on the jury. We expect a verdict by the end of the week. Warren, we're going to take another break. When we return our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everybody. Warren Smith here interrupting the podcast one more time to let you know that uh, it's now September, of course, and a new month means that we have a new donor premium. Uh, We're offering Restoring All Things, God's Audacious Plan for Changing the World Through Everyday People. It's a book that I wrote in 2015 with John Stone Street. John, of course, uh, many of you know, is the president of the Colson Center. He's an 
old friend and a great colleague. And, you know, John and I are both really um, pleased with this book. I can tell you that um, John and, and the Colson Center use it as part of their Colson Fellows Program. And um, I, I just think that if you care about Christian ministries and you care about the life of the church in this country, that you'll want to read this book. This book talks about ministries that are doing great work uh, in this country. There are ministries that uh, I think that we can at least pray for, if not financially support. And honestly, too, it's a little bit of a palate cleanser um, for some of the bad news that we report on here at Ministry Watch. Now, I do want to be clear that I think all news that is true is good news because it does make us aware of what's going on in the world and what to do about it. Uh, But this is unabashed good news that you will read in Restoring All Things. So a gift of any size to Ministry Watch during the month of September, and you'll get a free copy of Restoring All Things as our thank you. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Now let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Cowden with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. We like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. What do you have first? Well, the Episcopal Church released new attendance numbers this week, and it showed that the church is still in a rapid decline. More than 55% of Episcopal parishes now find themselves in a state of long-term membership loss, dropping uh, 10% or more over the past five reporting years, while only 12% grew during that same period. What about overall membership? Well, Episcopal membership rolls dropped 88,000 or so people uh, from about 1.5 million to about 1.4 million in 2022. That's down 6%, and it's the largest single-year loss in membership in recent history. The denomination has now lost 23% of its members in the last 10 years, and the rate of loss is accelerating. Was there any good news? Well, giving was up for the year, probably because the average Sunday attendance across the denomination was also up a bit, about 56,000, about 19%. But even that good news is not really that great because you have to consider that the year before Uh, was a COVID year, so you might call this a COVID bounce. The denomination's average Sunday attendance dropped more than 165,000 the year before, so this increase doesn't even come close to taking them back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, And it means that for the second year in a row, average Sunday attendance in Episcopal churches nationwide was less than 300,000. That means that the average Episcopal church in this country has less than 50 people in attendance on any given Sunday. Who is in our ministry spotlight this week? By the Hand Club for Kids is the name of the group we've highlighted. Uh, They were officially organized as a ministry in 2005 as a Christ-centered after-school program in the Chicago area. Leaders mentor kids in a safe place from kindergarten all the way through college. The ministry started with just one location with 16 kids, but has since grown to five locations, and they serve 1,700 kids, which is a tremendous growth. They've also grown a tremendous amount financially. Uh, They have more than $20 million in revenue in the most recent year. 
And who did Christina highlight in Ministries Making a Difference? Westchester Church of the Nazarene in Ohio opened its doors to students and teachers from a local junior high school after a fire over the Labor Day weekend damaged the building that they were using, Hopewell Junior High School. Uh, Westchester decided to host the 480 students and faculty so they could continue in person while damage to the school was being repaired. I also want to highlight the Honor Bound Motorcycle Ministry, which traveled to South Dakota in August to share the gospel with bikers who traveled from around the country to attend the annual Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. It's a pretty famous rally. You might have heard about it on the news. Partnering with the Rapid City First Assembly Church there, they washed bikes and detailed them for free, not accepting even donations. Last year, only 48 bikers came to get their bikes washed, but this year they washed 79 bikes, a more than 50% increase. When they're done washing the bikes, they pray over the bikes and their riders. Warren, do you have any final thoughts before we go? I do, just a couple. Uh, We have a new donor premium this month. My book, Restoring All Things, which I co-wrote with my friend and former Colson Center colleague, John Stone Street. I think you'll find that book a blessing. It highlights how God is using ministries and individuals to make a positive difference in the world. In fact, you can think of Christina Darnell's column, Ministries Making a Difference, in book form, and uh, you'll sort of have an idea of what we were trying to accomplish with that book. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page, and we will make sure that you get a copy of that book. And I also want to say thank you to everyone who attended our webinar uh, this week. It was called How to Find and Read a Form 990. Uh, we had a big crowd, it was a lively discussion in the Q&A session. And if you missed it, don't despair. We'll be doing it again soon. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen DeBerry, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Bob Smetania, Kim Roberts, Steve Raby, Yonat Shimron, Daniel Ritchie, Jeffrey Walton, Christina Darnell, and Rod Pitzer. A special thanks to the Institute for Religion and Democracy for contributing materials for this week's podcast. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.